many of you guys have ever had somebody in your life that made your life a living hell? Anybody? Ever have somebody like that in your life? Who's sitting next to them right now? Raise your hand. I just want to see who needs counseling. Uh, it's true though, right? Like we have, we have the capacity to make people miserable if we want to. How many of you guys have ever made somebody miserable on purpose because they, they ticked you off? Anybody? These are the people that need Jesus. Just want to throw that out there. My wife and I were counseling a young couple in our house. This was a, we don't do that as much anymore. We just don't have the capacity for it. But uh, early, earlier on in our church's a story, there's a young couple. Uh, they he'd gotten he he'd come to faith in Jesus in prison, and he gets out. And the dude that went into prison was not the dude that came out. And she didn't know if she wanted to be with this new religious dude. And so they were having all kinds of problems. And uh, they they were just talking about how unhappy they were with each other. Divorce is the only option, and I like it's, there, there are times when it's an option, but it's, it's, it's far more rare where that's the only option than what you think, but in any case, we're talking to them, and my wife is trying to be an encouragement to this couple and trying to make them like know that you know it's normal to like hate each other sometimes, and, and, and my wife goes, yeah, there was even a season in our marriage where I was just kind of hoping Sean would die. <laughs> Excuse me? And she goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that out loud. And I said, no, it's okay. I thought the same thing about you. <laughs> it's true, man. Isn't that a horrible thing? Not I didn't want it to die painfully. No, for real, not painfully, but like a heart attack driving down the road where she doesn't hit any other car. And then you guys got real quiet on that one, didn't you? You're like, wow, you actually thought about that one, didn't you? Listen, those of you guys who aren't married, you're like, I will, we will always be in love. Bro, you got another thing coming. I'm just saying. It's, and by the way, here's this. We've been married 31 years. Here's the secret to, to staying married. You don't want to know? Somebody write this down. Here's the secret to staying married for 31 years. You just don't leave. That's it. You just don't go. You don't go. Like, you get through the crap. The crap all, like, there's, everybody goes through tons of crap. You just got to get to the other side of it. And sometimes it's deeper than at other times right? And you might be in up over your head with it. That's when you just start grabbing the hands of other people who've gone through that much crap before you and stayed together. And then they kind of help you through it. And anyway, that's not what the sermon is, is about necessarily. It's about the people that make us miserable. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it is a spouse. Sometimes it's a, how many guys, your parents have made you miserable? Raise your hand. Parents ever make you miserable? All right. Kids, parents, here's your chance. Let's get back at them. You saw them raise their hand. How many guys, your kids made you miserable? Raise your hand. Parents, your kids made you miserable. Somebody at work, Make you miserable? How many of you guys ever had a boss that made your life a living hell and you can't get away from that person? They even have, a, they have power over you. It's horrible. Or, or a, 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 a family member, a neighbor. I had a lady talk to me after the first service. Like the person that makes her life miserable is her next door neighbor. That's a, that's a bad way to go. Because like you're, you're kind of stuck, you know? You're, you're, you're stuck. And that situation, especially when it gets, like, what do, you, what do you do with this? I went through a season in my life that I've talked about here at Grace Church where I had a coworker who was um, making my life, uh, this, I, on three different occasions, I went to this person, trying to do the right thing, right? Uh, but I'm, my wife had said to me uh, at some point during those four years that we worked together, uh, she said, this job is, I think you need to quit because this job is changing you and it's not for the better. You can get another job. We don't have to keep this job. For whatever reason, I just didn't feel like that was the right move. I don't, I can't explain that. I didn't have like, I didn't have like, God told me, Sean, don't quit. It wasn't like that, but I, I just kind of felt in my heart that that wasn't the right move. So I, I, I didn't. I just kind of hung in there. 
And, uh, but I, was, I, was, I really was miserable. And uh, I went to this person and I said, uh, set up a private meeting, nobody else was around, and said, have I offended you? It is, you know, have I, have I done anything? And like, oh, no, don't, you know, gaslighting. It's all in your head. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no problem between us. And for two weeks, it was great. And I don't actually mean great. I just mean it wasn't crap for two weeks. It was normal. But after two weeks, it went right back to them just doing whatever they could to just make me uncomfortable. And the worst part was this person was in a position of authority over me, too. So that, that made it worse because they had power, right? There's, there's only so much you can do. And um, so a few months went by, and I went back, and I set up another meeting. And I, was, I said, hey, I, I've, I've done something. I know I have. I know I have. What have I done? You know, just, just let me know what it is, and I'll do whatever I can. And they're like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And again, for two weeks. Did it a third time, and still again, nothing wrong. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't, like, I don't know. Is there something in your heart? And I'm like, yeah, now there is, because I want to kill him. Now I just start praying for God to kill him. That's, that's what I'm going to do now, because nothing else is working. You ask God to fix the situation, and, and he doesn't. And um, so I... I have a, my dad is a godly man, and uh, he's been a good mentor in my life. And, and part of the reason why he's been a good mentor in my life, and, I, and some of you guys need to hear this, is because I still go to my dad. Because your dad's probably not going to like, like your dad, if he's a good dude, he needs to be invited to speak into your situation, or whoever you think is a spiritual mentor. You're like, my spiritual mentor, like they're ghosting, they... They don't want to be rude, so you might need to just reach out. Like, whoever you think is a mentor, you need to reach out to that person, too. Don't wait for them to call you. Don't be passive. Reach out, right? Call them. Say, let's have coffee. And um, one of the things that my dad had taught me was that sometimes when you're being spiritually disciplined by God, God will use the circumstances that you're in. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, maybe, maybe this is spiritual discipline. God's trying to grab my attention. Because the truth is, when everything in your life is going great, it's easy to forget about God. But when the poop hits the fan, you're talking to God more now than you ever do. So sometimes the worst thing to happen to you is not a bad thing happening to you because that's the thing that got you talking to him again. So I'm going to God. So is there sin in my heart? Have I? Like, what do you? Show me what I've done wrong to you. And now, like, show me the sin in my heart. Show me the sin of my marriage. Show me, like, God, if you're trying, if this is spiritual discipline and I'm in the woodshed and I'm getting a spanking, I like teach me now so you can stop whooping my butt. I am done with this and and nothing. And God isn't fixing anything at all. And you start to feel like God doesn't see or God doesn't hear or or, or even feel or, or care anymore. And uh, we all go through those things. And there's a story in the Bible of three different kings, and they were successive. It was one king, then the other king, then the other king. And they all had interactions with each other and in their relationship with God that made things better or difficult depending on the situation. And for the next three weeks, we're just going to be looking at those three kings and see what their experience with the poop hitting the fan uh, and what they, how, that, how that played out in their life. We want to see what that teaches us about how this should play out in our life. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's where we're going to be. How many of you guys are the youngest kid in your family? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're the youngest in the family. I just want to see who all the brats are. All the oldest kids say amen. All right. Uh, you guys are spoiled rotten, and uh, I think mom and dad like you better than us. 
Now, of a parent with three kids, it's a little bit true. We do like the third one a little bit better. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, it's not, not true. I love all the kids the same. You just like them differently. That's horrible. I shouldn't say that either. Um, that's not true. Oh, my gosh. I'm just trying to be funny, but, like, my kids might actually see this. And so they'd go, we, told, we knew Ryan was the favorite. We knew Ryan was the favorite. The youngest one is often spoiled and misbehaved. Somebody say amen. But they never get to be in charge of nothing. And they never even get new clothes because they always have to wear what? Younger kids say amen. Doesn't that suck? Right? And they're annoying. Older kids say amen. Right? But you older kids deserve it because you're mercilessly abusive to them. Younger kids say amen. Right? And it's been that way for thousands and thousands of years. 3,000 years ago in Bethlehem, it's a farming community at the time. Same thing is true. Man named Jesse has eight boys. Eight boys. Woo! God bless the mama. Am I right? Of eight boys. That is a strong woman right there. Like she got forearms because, you know, she paddled the tar out of all eight of those boys. Right? They're a mess. They were not a shepherding family. They were a farming family. Uh, but the youngest son, uh, David, was responsible for the family's small flock of sheep. So while the older seven boys are taking care of the, the homestead, the younger boy is out for one or two nights at a time trying to find good green grass uh, for the sheep. And every time he went, he would take two things. He'd take a sling to fight off predators, and he would take a musical instrument to fight off boredom. And he got really good at both. Wrote a lot of poetry, uh, wrote some songs and poetry about God, his love for God, about the beauty of creation and about the generosity of God. And some of those songs that he wrote, we still have. If you open up your Bible uh, to the very middle, you're probably in the book of Psalms. And over half of those were written by the eighth born son of Jesse. And he talks a lot about shepherds and sheep. Because that was, we think, like I think, that some of those songs that he wrote, he wrote when he was a teenager. Like, he's just out in the field. What's, what's gonna, like, he's setting up piles of rocks, and he's nailing them, and he's nailing them. And like, how long do you do that before you get bored? So he sits down, and he just starts playing guitar, the dulcimer or whatever. Like, he's just, like just, just, just trying to stay active and busy. And one day, he's out there, and a messenger comes running, just hightailing it, probably sweating, panting, out of breath, and shows up and says, David, you have to go home right now. Are my parents okay? Yeah, your parents are fine, but you have to go now. What about the sheep? I'll stay with the sheep. You have to go home. Why? Because the most important person in all of Israel is waiting for you in the living room. Okay. No one's ever looked for him. He's the eighth-born kid. Like, he's, in society, he's, like, if something happens to him, nobody's really going to worry about it. Right? Now, if something happens to Eliab, the oldest brother, the number one son, now that's a travesty, but the eighth-born son, David, so he, he runs home, and that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, verse 20, uh, 12. So Jesse sent for him. And the Bible, I don't know why the Bible does this, but it gives us a physical description of him. And apparently, he's a good-looking dude because it says he's dark-skinned and handsome with beautiful eyes. Ladies. <laughs> Isn't that funny that the Bible would do that? 
Like, so who am I thinking? Like, I'm, I'm like, okay, who's dark skin? Like, who's, like, I'm thinking, like, what's, what's the best looking black dude with cool looking eyes? And the first thing I thought of, because I'm an older man, I thought of Mario Van Peebles. I'm sorry. Anybody else over 70? Anybody else? All right. He's a good looking man, right? Like, if you're, if you're old like us, Mario Van, I don't know who, like, like Michael B. Jordan, good looking dude. But I don't know about, like, he's got normal eyes. You know what I'm saying? He's a good-looking dude, but he's got normal eyes. I wouldn't say he's got beautiful eyes, but so I don't know. Who's that dude? Somebody tell me who that You? Ha, ha, ha. Boom. Mackie was ready to go. Mackie on the second row. That's me, and I'm available. Dark skin, handsome, and beautiful. Mackie, you are easy on the eyes. I'll give you that. You're a good-looking dude. Look like you can handle yourself. And the older you get, the more muscular you get, too. Dude, you're doing all right. Mackie, second row, he'll meet you in the Connection Center after the service. <laughs> hey, hey, you owe me. <laughs> you owe me. Uh, and the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, he just showed up in the living room. He's sweating. He's out of breath. He's a middle schooler, so he ain't taken any. He's been out in the field for three days. Homeboy stinks. Anybody ever smelled a middle schooler ain't taken a bath in a day or two? Raise your hand. Who's in middle school? Raise your hand. Your parents have been riding you about wearing deodorant. You need to in the name of Jesus. That's why you came to church today is to hear your pastor say, wear deodorant. Am I right? Somebody, parents, say yeah, amen. 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 Every one of my kids, like, I don't need it. Trust me. Oh, my gosh. I thought there was something going bad in the refrigerator. It was just Ryan standing there. <laughs> Holy cow. He said, I took a bath yesterday. I don't need to take one every day. That's when he was 19. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, <laughs> I only say that because he's in Mongolia. What's he going to do about it? Um, anyway, so he's in the living room, all of his brothers around. He's like, what, what, what? And then Samuel just walks over. He's sweating. He's out of breath and he stinks. And Samuel anoints him with oil. Watch this. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. So what should happen next? He's just been anointed king. What do you think should happen next? In my opinion, what should have happened and what everybody else is probably waiting is like, what's going to, you know, like the older brothers are like, uh, they're probably thinking two things. One is, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I hope he, one, why didn't I get picked? Uh, two, I hope he doesn't remember how mean I was to him. <laughs> He's about to become king. Um, but then Samuel leaves and he doesn't take David. Like if my thought is like God's given this promise to this kid that he's going to become king. But I think the diff distance between here and here, not just in this story, but in my whole life, I always feel like the process should be a whole lot shorter. Like between like what I'm asking for and what God does, that should be immediate. But it never is. Because David is anointed king, but doesn't become king for 15 more years. And those 15 years are filled with crap. It's all bad. It's, he becomes homeless. He's hunted. He loses his family. He loses everything. Like this, But God said, right? But God ain't doing nothing. And you... 
you, you read in the book of Psalms, some of the songs that David wrote during this season are songs like, why don't you care about me? What have I done to make you hide your face from me? Why is it that good people lose and bad people win? Why is it that the more unethical you are, the more successful you become, and the more you try to do the right thing, the harder it is? Like, these are the songs David is writing in these 15 years. It's, it's not fair is what it is. It's, it's not fair. And um, it's just, so if he thought this was going to be a good day for him, and that things would change moving forward, he's got another think coming, as my mom would say. Uh, because it, it doesn't get better for him at, at all. But what we're going to see is the first thing I want you to remember from today's teaching, and that's this. That God uses everything you've been through to prepare you for everything he's planned for you. It's going to be on the screen. God uses everything you've been through to prepare you for everything he's planned for you. Everything. He doesn't waste a thing. So what's David bring to the table now? All he's got is a slingshot and a harp. Uh, heart makes sense because it would have been really small and light. would have been easy for him to carry on his back as a middle schooler. Guitar or dulcimer would have been really big, harder to repair if it got knocked up against a rock and broken. So like a, a harp completely makes sense. He just wants something that makes sense. Like he could have used a recorder, but everybody hates the recorder. Everybody who grew up in public school say amen. If you're in a school principal, kill the recorder in the name of Jesus for the parents' sake. We stinking hate that thing. All right, anyway. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a troubling spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Now, here's what's crazy, is that God had used the same guy who had anointed David king, that same guy anointed Saul king. Just like God handpicked David, God handpicked Saul. And these two guys could not be any more dissimilar. Uh, they had one thing in common, that they were both attractive people. The Bible goes out of its way to explain that Saul was a, a handsome guy also. The Bible says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. It's just not that he was taller. Like, my son is 6'4", I'm 6'1". It's only three inches, but like when we stand next to each other, it's, it's weird how three inches is kind of a, like that's, it's taller than you think. Uh, I ran into Shaq at the Atlanta airport. Has anybody ever run into Shaq before? Anybody? Every service is always somebody who's run into Shaq. I ran into him at the airport, and I was looking down at my phone trying to figure out where my gate was, and I thought out of the corner of my eye I was about to run into a pole, one of those poles that hold up the airport. <laughs> and I look up, and it's just Shaq standing there waiting to see if I'm going to run into him. And I go, what's up, Shaq? And he goes, sup. Shaq knows me. It was awesome. He acknowledged my existence. I said, what's up, Shaq? He goes, sup. Uh, it was cool. Anyway, uh, so I, I kept on going. But that, that dude is, uh, I didn't come up to the top of his shoulder. So that's head and shoulders taller. That's, that's Saul to everybody else. But Saul went straight from the sticks to the palace, and it ruined him. It ruined him. He was a rotten human being who felt like everybody, including God, owed him something for the rest of his life because he's the chosen one. He's a horrible human being. Until Samuel says, God has is, is chosen somebody else. 
And I don't know if Saul thought that that was a metaphor, but he didn't take it very seriously. And he always seemed surprised that his kids weren't going to become royalty after him. But Samuel told him that because you've rejected God and made yourself God, God has chosen another person is what he says. But then there's years go by and nobody else has ever actually chosen, so he doesn't take it serious, uh, apparently. But God's, God's spirit is removed from him once David is anointed. Back to the story. Verse 15, 1 Samuel 16, 15. Some of Saul's servants said to him, a tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let's find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He'll play soothing music and you'll soon be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, hey, uh, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player and the plot thickens. Because between the anointing and this, there's some time where David's just out in the woods or the field and nothing's happening for him at all. Uh, somebody says, Jesse's sons uh, from Bethlehem is a talented heart player. Not only that, he's trying to add more to the resume. He's a brave warrior and a man of war, and he's not. The guy's lying, because we're going to see in a minute that David's not even old enough to go to war. So the guy's just like beefing up his resume. Why? I don't know. Is he a cousin? I don't like... It's not public knowledge that David's been anointed king. The only people who know about this are the, the eight sons of Jesse, David being one of them. Dad, Jesse, and mom, if she's still alive, and Samuel. They're keeping it. Because there is still a king. And they know that if word gets out that David's been anointed king, he's going to die. So it's in the whole family's best interest to keep this on the DL. Um. So not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and he has good judgment. He's also, and this guy goes, and by the way, he's also good looking. So apparently that was a really big thing about David. I mean, he was a pretty man, as much as a man can be pretty. Uh, good looking dude. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son, uh, David the shepherd. Uh, so David thought that this was a good thing for him to be brought into the king's household. It, it wasn't. The next chapter uh, is uh, when the kings go out to war. So they say this weird thing, at the time of year when the kings go out to war. So apparently it's almost like a calendar thing where, hey, it's time to go fight somebody. Let's go. Mount up. Regulators, mount up. Any lot, right? Come on. Regu regulators, mount up. What movie was that? Young Guns. Young Guns. That's another good one. Like, like if you're under 80, you need to Google that movie. It's really good. Uh, young guns. Uh, anyway, um, so they go to war with the Philistines. And this year it's different because they have a champion. And this guy makes Shaq look small. Uh, so he'd be head and shoulders taller than Shaq. Shaq 7-2, right? Something like that. Uh, this guy's scraping nine feet. He's gigantic. And uh, you know, we've, we found some like mummified bodies and stuff of some really big people from the past, and, and he's one of them. Goliath is one of them. And he goes, uh, hey, man, we can all fight each other, and thousands of us are going to die on both sides. I got a good idea. How about only one person dies today? I represent the Philistines, Israel. You pick a Jewish champion, and we'll fight to the death. That way only one person has to die, but then the losing team will just pay tribute to the winning team, like what's going to happen if 10,000 of us die. I think it's actually a brilliant plan, right? 
Uh, unless I'm the one who's picked to go fight. Shaq's big brother. And the Bible says that this dude was a beast. Like he had hit the, It says that his spear uh, was like a weaver's beam. I don't even know how big a weaver's beam is, but apparently that's pretty big. Uh, some of you guys might know. But it does say that the spear tip, the tip of his spear, weighed 15 pounds. That's the heaviest bowling ball at Westgate Lanes. Right? Some of us, we don't like that ball at all. It's too heavy. Right? Now imagine a 15-pound bowling ball at the end of a nine-foot pole, and that pole is like a four-by-four. It's round, though, and you have to throw that with one arm. You ain't doing it. You can't even pick that up. You couldn't pick with one hand. You could not pick that up with a bowling ball on the other end and get that up in the air. Your forearms aren't strong enough. Not only could he do that, he could chuck it. Can you imagine running in battle and a 15-pound bowling ball on a four-by-four hits you in the chest? And it's sharp. It's going to pin you to the six people behind you. He had a grown man that did nothing but just carry his shield and sword. It's so heavy. His shield. The guy would just walk into the battle and just his job is just to stay in front of Goliath. Protecting probably from the arrows or whatever. And I, I don't know. Anyway, but that's, he, had a, he had an armor bearer. That's what the guy, and the, the thing was massive, massive. Um, and David shows up. And every day for 40 days, the Philistine champion is like swearing at, he's just trying to taunt the Jews. And he's like, You're the, the God of Israel is stupid, and he's a doo-doo head, and like, just like just swearing at the God of Israel. And, and David hears this, and he's like, somebody should say something. Like, somebody, shut up. Like, you're, like, he's a middle schooler who just doesn't know when to be quiet. Does anybody know any other middle schoolers like that? Anyone at all? Anyone at all? Know any middle schoolers? This is, this is David, and, and here's, here's what happens. First uh, Samuel chapter 17, Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines, but the other boys weren't quite old enough, mature enough, or trained. David is the eighth born, definitely wasn't old enough for the army, so he's not a man of war, so that guy was exaggerating. Uh, verse 14, David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth, between the front lines where his brothers were and his father's, father's uh, farm to take care of the sheep. And this one particular time when he goes back to the front lines, we know that David was sent with uh, 10 blocks of cheese to give to the captain as a gift on behalf of the family of Jesse. So David's just running supplies from the family. Dad, dad's responsible to take care of the food for his three sons who are at war make sure they have everything they need. So he's using David, because he's the throwaway kid, uh, to run back and forth. So he's basically the messenger boy. But David went back and forth, verse 15, so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champions shred, uh, uh, strutted in front of the Israelite army. And then David starts doing all this talking, verse 26. But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. He said, what are you doing around here anyway? He demanded, what about the few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see blood. You're just here for the show. You just want to watch the battle. That's not the way you should talk to a king, an anointed king. Eliab knew that David was an anointed king. But how long ago was that? No one's taking it seriously anymore. David's life had just gone back to what it was. But nobody's being willing to fight. And Saul doesn't want to make anybody do it. He wants a volunteer so what he does is he says, if anybody fights Goliath, just so you know, whether you win or lose, everybody in your family, nobody has to pay taxes anymore. 
Nope, nobody will ever have to pay. How many of you guys would love that hookup right there? Somebody say, oh my gosh, right? You never have to pay taxes again. That'd be awesome. And then nobody was doing it. So he said, uh, and you get to marry my daughter. Still nobody took it up. Uh, apparently she wasn't as pretty as David. <laughs> Bob doesn't say nothing about her looks. Says lots of stuff about David, but nothing about, about Saul's daughter. 1 Samuel chapter 17, as, verse 55. As Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Which is a weird thing for him to ask because he's already met David because David's already been playing his harp in the palace. But he's just background noise. Like nobody knows the name of the band members from Boba Fett's cafe. Remember that guy with the big thing? He's got the, that guy? Nobody knows that guy. Right? They're just background noise. That's all David is. He's just the, that's all he is to King Saul. He's nobody. So Saul's already heard that his dad's name is Jesse. His name is David. He's a great heart player. Oh, and he's fine looking. And he's a mighty man of war and a brave soldier and none of that stuff. But so he's already been in Saul's house, but Saul doesn't recognize him because David means nothing to Saul yet. Uh, back at the story. Uh, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared this. The end of verse 56. Well, find out who he is, the king told him. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. That's a great story, by the way, because David is a middle schooler, and uh, when he comes out to fight Goliath, Goliath goes, what am I, a dog that you would send a little kid? What the freak? Like, he's, like, he's offended. Like, you're not taking this serious? Like, I don't want to slaughter a child. Really? Is this what we're going to do? And he goes, kid, I'm going to cut off your head and feed your body to the birds. You know what David's insult back was? Oh, yeah. That was it. Read what David said back. David goes, I'm going to cut off your head and feed your body to the birds. That's actually his response. He just repeated back what he said. I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say, bounce off me and sticks on you. Right? That's his response. So when David kills him, he made a promise to everybody he's got to chop off his head, but David did not bring a sword to this fight. All he's got is a slingshot, a sling. That's all he's got. So the Bible says he uses Goliath's sword to chop off Goliath's head. That's embarrassing. It's like if a cop gets his own gun taken, that's like, oh, that's like if you're a cop. I mean, we have a lot of cops in our church. That would be really, really bad. He gets his sword taken, and his own sword is used to chop off his head. Now, David, this is a sword that a grown man carries. And David's a middle schooler. What's he, he's, not, he's a shepherd. He has no idea how to use a sword. Never, I don't even know if he's ever picked one up. Definitely never ever picked one up this big. So what did that look like? Like in my head, like here's what you got to do. If the Bible's boring to you, you're not reading it right. Read it and picture it like a movie in your head. It's amazing. So how would David have done this? David would have had to drag it out of its scabbard and then come around to where the dead body was and then get grab it by the handle, and then put the sword, like, sticking back on the ground and kind of go like this, and then like that. And I'm wondering, did he get the neck the first shot? What if he, like, got him in the chest? And everybody's like, oh, man. He's like, crap, I missed. And he does it again, and he has to bring it back. And he goes, Gah! like this. And he's like, Poof! oh, and then all the soldiers are like, stop, 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 right? Like, how many times did it take him to get... Sorry, is this getting too PG-13? I'm sorry if anybody's getting sick. But, but this, something happened. And then here's what happens. 
Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. And I'm wondering how mangled this head was. Uh, Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, his name is Jesse and we live in Bethlehem. And now he knows who David is. Because we're about to see David becomes a threat. So it was better when he was an unknown nothing. When he was a flea in the household of Saul than for Saul to get to know him because in chapter 18, verse 6, it says, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul and they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. (coughs) This made Saul very angry and he's kind of a jerk anyway. So what's a tyrant going to do? What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So now David is popular and he's engaged to his daughter. This is not good, King Saul. So thankfully, David gives him an out. David comes in and he goes, I'm the youngest of a small family. I'm not worthy. And Saul goes, fine. And he marries her to another woman. Uh, Excuse me, to another man. Uh, Then... His, her younger sister falls in love with David. And Saul's like, how can I use this against him? So he comes up with an idea. But first, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelms Saul. And David's just right back in his crappy job again. A tormenting uh, spirit from God overwhelms Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but David escaped twice. Now, he threw the spear once, so how did he escape twice? I don't know, but somehow that day, Saul tried one more time to kill him. So twice that day, he tried to kill him, and he he escaped. Uh, He finds out his... But David shows up at work the next day. Like David just keeps showing up as though the spears aren't being chucked at him. Like he just, he just keeps showing up. He just keeps showing up. Just keeps showing up. And uh, finds out his younger daughter loves David. And he goes, I know how to get rid of David. And I'm only going to use this word once. But what he says to David is, uh, the bride price for my older daughter was Goliath. You passed on that. That was a one-time deal. Uh, I'll let you marry my younger daughter, though. But the bride price is going to be, like I said, I'm going to say this word one time, don't want to say it again, as a hundred foreskins of Philistine soldiers. Because he says to his advisors, there's no way that'll happen. Because they ain't going to let that happen. They're going to, you know, that, that's, hey, can I have? Nope, you cannot. I got to take it. Then I, you're going to die. So Saul says to his counsel, there's no way he can beat a hundred Philistine warriors and one-on-one combat. David, though, sees this as like this huge honor. He must think, I'm a Navy SEAL. This is amazing. Like to be given this privilege? I'm a ninja. This is awesome. And David went out and got 200 and brings them back in a bag. And somebody had to count them. I'm sorry, was that too much? Was that too much? I'm just glad I ain't that dude. That's the only dude who got a worse job than David, right? And, and David gets to marry her. Verse, chapter 19, the next chapter, verse 9. 
Again, but when one day when Saul was sitting at home with the spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. As David played his harp, Saul hurled the spear at David, but David dodged out of its way the second time, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped in the night. After this, Saul tries to murder David nine more times. What have I done wrong? Nothing. Was Saul anointed by God to be king, yes or no? Was David anointed to be king, yes or no? Then why did God not take Saul out of the way? Why did he leave that horrible human being in his life? How can this person treating me this way be good? Where the heck is God? Why won't he fix this circumstance? Fix this relationship. Make this get better. Why doesn't God fix it? I think here's the reason. Because if David had gone from the sticks to the palace, like Saul had gone from the sticks to the palace, David would have ended up as King Saul part two. Because it doesn't matter how great of a guy David was, he would have repeated the same sins because, and I want you to remember this, God is not looking for great people. He's looking for broken people. That's why. Great people think they're great. God can't use those people. He needs them broken. Think of the King Saul in your life. Maybe it is a person. Why won't God get rid of them? Make them apologize. Make them seek reconciliation. Think of the tough thing that you're going through right now that's not getting any better. Why won't God give you a better job, take away your sickness, change your circumstance. Between where you are right now and where God is taking you is a process, and there are no shortcuts around it. You can bail on the process if you want, but there are no shortcuts through it. And if you bail on the process, you're going to miss all of the good that God intends to bring from all of the bad. This process, God has a school in which he's enrolled every one of his kids. And that school is necessary because we aren't naturally educated in the things of God. Because you and I think that we're pretty all set. I'm pretty good. I'm all set. I got this. I'll figure it out. I don't need your help. It's everyone else's fault. And God needs to break that. Here's the problem. The problem is that in every single one of us is a King Saul. And under the right circumstances, every single one of us become a tyrant. So God places us under a tyrant so that we know what one looks like. That's what he does. He shines a spotlight on all of the horrible things about the circumstance you're in or the person that you have to deal with so that you start to recognize when those traits start showing up in your own life. And the hardest thing about the school that God enrolls us in is that our instructor is most often an unbroken person. They are arrogant, condescending, harsh, unkind, and selfish. And you do have the right to pick up those spears and chuck them back. But what God's calling you to do is to put down the spear and take up a cross instead. I've got friends in that circumstance I worked at before, they said, just go above that dude, get him fired, right? 
There are people that are counseling. Just pick up the spear and throw it back. You have a right to this. David, you can find enough people that will support your claim to the throne. And when King Saul demands a final answer from Samuel, Samuel will show up and he will back you as king. You are the next king as God intends. Take it and become just like King Saul. Show everybody that you're brave, that you're strong enough to stand against them, that you're tough, that you won't tolerate injustice. No one can treat you like this and get away with it. You will not be wrong. You are God's anointed, and you are also just like King Saul. So what do we do when King Saul starts taking aim at me? You do what David did, and you duck. I didn't do that at the time. And what that means to duck is to recognize that the spear and the King Saul is not the thing. It's what God's wanting to do in me because of this thing. My focus in that season was on the person chucking the spears and the, and, and the spears that they were throwing at me, and I got hit. You know how I got hit? Uh, you know how I know I got hit uh, because I became bitter. People that get hit with the spear become bitter. Because our focus, the whole thing for us is about what they're doing. David he went right back to work the next day as though it never happened because he knew that God is bigger than this, that while I'm playing checkers, God's playing chess. He's several moves ahead. God saw the spear coming. He saw the spear chucker coming. He saw all of this. I'm going to duck underneath this, and I'm going to keep going. Why? Because the spear isn't the thing for me. Neither is King Saul. God's the thing for me and what God's wanting to do in me through King Saul and the spear. But that wasn't where I was at. It was all about, I want everybody to know that that person is horrible, that they lack character, that they have no integrity, that they're a liar, that they're a jerk, that they're abusive and manipulative. And I want everybody to know that. And look what he's throwing at me. Talked about it at home. I talked about it with my best friend. Talked about it to my dad. Look at these freaking spears. And homeboy is bitter because I got hit by every single one of them. It took me years to get past that. I wish I could go back to Sean in his early 30s and say, bro, God sees you even if you can't see him. And God's doing something even in this story of this season in your life, even if you don't feel like God's doing anything. That person and those spears have nothing to do. God's using this. He's going to make sure you end up as a David, not a Saul. But if all you're focused on is Saul and the spears, you're going to become him as soon as you get to his chair right? So duck. That's what I would say. Three keys to avoiding the spears. Oh my gosh. One, never begin throwing spears in the first place. Don't stop. Quit. Like they're saying stuff. Now you're saying stuff. You just became King Saul. They undermine you. You undermine them. Yeah, you had a right to do it. And you have a right to become King Saul all you want. The whole point of this is for you to see what rottenness looks like to pull the rottenness out of you. Don't ever start throwing spears. Number two, keep away from other spear chuckers. All these other people are like, well, I would do that. This is what I would do. This is what I would do. Stop. Don't talk to them about it anymore. Don't even talk to them about the spears. They should never know you ever get another spear coming your way. They can't help you. And number three, keep your mouth shut about the spears or you become a spear chucker yourself because you don't know right now if the situation you're in right now is ordained of God or not. So proactively, what should I do? Ask God to rid you of the King Saul that is in your heart. 
I said this a second ago. God places you under his anointed Saul to place a spotlight in all of the ways that you have already started to become like him or are becoming like him. Embrace this season, this circumstance, this horrible thing, this horrible relationship. Lean into it and do three things. Force yourself to love that person, especially because they are unlovable. Jesus said to do this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you and take advantage of you. He said to do that. My dad said, you need to pray for God to bless that person. I said, I don't want God to bless them. And that, Jesus didn't say pray if you want that. He said pray. Pray for your enemies. Pray for them. Bless them. You need to pray for them. Well, that's a prayer I'm not going to mean. I go mean it. I'll pray it, but I ain't going to mean it. And my dad said, Jesus didn't say pray it if you mean it. He said pray it. And here's what it took me four years to learn. Because it was, yeah. That about the time that you're praying for them to be blessed by God, about the time that you can pray that and mean it, is about the same time as when you're healed from it. I'd have never been healed from it until I started praying for God to bless them. You're walking around with a spear in your back. Only way to get rid of that is, this sucks. You got to pray for God to bless that person. Nobody here wants to do that, but Jesus didn't say, pray it because you want to. He said, pray it because I said to. Well, I ain't going to mean it. I didn't say you have to mean it. Pray for God to bless your spear chucker. God bless them. And about the same time as you start to mean it, you're going to be healed from it. Second thing you need to do, and this is what I would tell myself, discipline yourself to serve them when they are selfish. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, Jesus said this, if a soldier compels you to carry his gear for a mile, carry it an extra mile. Why? They don't deserve that. It's not about them. Don't get to the end of your mile and go, fine, I did what I had to do. No, now you become King Saul. Take it an extra mile because now it's what you wanted to do. You do more for you. You get to the end and say, I didn't do this for you anyway, stupid Roman. If you're Italian, I'm sorry. But I didn't carry this because you're making me, look, I'm carrying it an extra mile because I wanted to. This is about what God's doing in my heart, not what I was forced to do for you. Because this was never about you, King Saul. This is about what God's wanting to do in my heart through King Saul. That's why Jesus said, if they sue you for your jacket, give them their coat. Well, they don't deserve my coat. It's not about them. It's a reminder to you that you didn't need your coat. The coat that you got came from God. He'll give you another coat. Give them the vest too. Why? So that you can demonstrate to yourself that this isn't about them. This is about God. You want my sneakers? Here's my stupid sneakers. You got them all. Because it was never about them. You don't turn the other cheek for them. You turn the other cheek for you. You don't walk the extra mile for them. You walk the extra mile for you. You don't give them your vest and your coat for them. You give it for you because you have got to get on top of this or you're going to become bitter under it. You've got to get this. Stay on top of it. The third thing I would do is focus on releasing their offenses quickly. Forgive them quickly. Because if you forgive men their trespasses, then your Father in heaven will forgive you yours also. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses against him. Matthew 6, 14 to 15 then when is this season of my King Saul ever going to end? And we'll learn about that next week. Cliffhanger. <laughs> and in wrapping up, for now, focus on the King Saul in your life. Think of the person who's made your life a living hell. The boss who gaslights you, the partner who cheated you, 
the coworker who stole the credit for your work, the spouse who takes you for granted, the roommate who lies to your face, and the friend who shared your secret with the other friends in your friend group. And instead of asking God to get them, ask God to show you the ways in which you are most likely to behave just like them. Ask God to show you any bitterness in your heart that exists because of what they've done. Ask God to grow you through this season. My dad said earlier on in my life when I was going through another thing, Matthew chapter 18 says, if you, you have odds with another person, Jesus said, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, and this is step four. My dad said, Matthew chapter 18, read it. Some of you guys need to. Uh, my dad said, you need to do step one. I did step one, it didn't work. And I go to step two. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to like, just forget about it, let it go. And my dad says, Sean, if you don't learn how to handle this now, God's going to bring this back around again until you do learn to handle it. So if you've got to go through this, learn what you need out of it once so that you don't have to watch any reruns. So if you're going through a thing, God's trying to do a thing. And if you don't let them, this is going to keep happening. It's going to keep, and some of you guys, it seems like this keeps happening all the time in your life, doesn't it? It just keeps coming back around, keeps coming back around. You know why? Because you bail on the lesson. You've made everything about the spear chucker. You didn't make any of it about God or what he was trying to do through the spear chucker. Ask God to help you wait for the season that comes after this one and ask God to use this season to prepare you for the one that he has prepared for you. Here's what I know. God was sovereign enough to make Saul his unwilling servant in preparing David to be a king after his own heart. So God is sovereign enough to make all of this work out for your spiritual development, your personal joy, and God's greatest good being done also. So give yourself to him and the process that he's walking you through and trust him to know more than you know. Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful that you see us, that you actually care about what we're going through, that you're not dispassionate about our pain. And even though David, for 15 years, I don't see him having any other conversations with Samuel, which means he wouldn't have heard from you in all that time. And that had to be incredibly difficult to keep doing the right thing. And God, that's not too unlike some of the situations we're in right now, where we don't feel like you're doing anything. And what we're going through isn't good. We don't, at least we can't see any good in it. So what I have to tell myself is probably what David had to tell himself, that you are good even when life is bad. That you see me even when I can't see you. That you care even when my heart is turning hard, you care. Help me to lean into this. And if there's something you want me to learn from this, let me learn it one time. One time, let me learn it so I don't have to be brought back to this class again. Let me pass this one. God, teach me what I need to know. If you're disconnected from God, then your prayer is, God, be a part of my story. You have things that keep you separated from God. Your disobedience to God, your selfishness towards others. That's why we needed Jesus, who was never disobedient to God, never selfish towards other people, who paid off the debt we owe God because of our sins rose from the dead with a new life to give us a second shot at life. And maybe you need a whole second shot at your story. So your prayer is, God, I'm going to give you the pen in my life. I want you to take away all of the badness that's in my heart. Forgive me for the things I've done to others and the ways that I've dishonored you. And I'm asking you to become a part, the, the main character in my story. And if you do that, it doesn't mean this chapter ends. You may go deeper into this chapter before you come out of it. Because God's going to do something, and that's your prayer. God, do something with this. Don't waste my pain. And bring me out of it as the person you intended me to be.
before I went in. This is the thing that we all ask in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.